Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dick Clark, who is a Professor Emeritus of Educational Psychology and Technology and a Clinical Professor of Surgery, as well as an author of over 300 articles and book chapters, alongside books he's authored himself. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us. And thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Dick, welcome to the Learning Development Podcast. Thanks very much. Um, so Dick, perhaps we could start off uh, uh, if you could explain to us uh, what cognitive task analysis is. Well, it's a relatively new approach that significantly improves the interview strategies that designers use to discover from experts what trainees need to learn during training that would enhance their performance after training. Mm -hmm. um, it, it draws on what we've learned in research over the past 50 years about the brain, specifically how we learn, how we store information, how we retrieve it, how we remember it, um, and in this case, the ways that experts mentally store and describe what they know. Um, one way to say the one way to describe the reason for this is experts aren't able to describe much of what they know and do uh, when they perform on the job. And CTA then captures more of that, more of what experts, let's say, don't know what they know. And. and um... Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's going to surprise a lot of people in uh, in learning and development, working with uh, subject matter experts or uh, or, or star performers. Um, I mean, user generated content is a, is uh, is a hot topic in learning and development. I'm asked a lot, um, or whether you know uh, how how people can get going on this and uh, and and how they should do it. But I think that uh, a lot of the time that is uh, uh, like like quite a lot in learning and development. It is seeking to apply a type of solution without it fulfilling a uh, a, a fully defined need. Um, but with with cognitive task analysis, um, you, you mentioned there. Um, what what kind of research um, findings have you had on on uh, how much can actually be recalled um, from uh, from your subject matter experts? Um, and, uh, and and what some of the benefits are of uh, of cognitive task analysis being used uh, to increase that? Well, you know the the evidence is pretty clear from many different studies, different countries, different groups, and so on. That all come up to the pretty much the same picture, and that is that as task analysis is now performed, it's not discovering about seventy percent of the decisions that experts make. Mm. Um, it, it, it captures many more of the actions that they perform, and presumably it does that because experts are able to observe themselves doing something with their hands, but they're not able to observe them what they do with their minds. And so it turns out that we automate a good bit of what we do with our minds. In other words, the decisions that we perform over and over again become automated and unconscious, sort of to free up our our thinking, our working memory, so to speak. Mm. And so when we perform task analysis, we miss that 70% and we miss another 30 to 35% of the action steps. 
GTA then increases the capture level, the discovery level, about 80% over traditional task analysis. Mm. Uh, when we look at the evidence, we do double-blind studies. In other words, people that are assessing the results of these studies don't know how somebody was trained. When experts who are interviewed with CTA also train a control group of trainees, where the experimental group is trained by somebody else who's used the CTA as the basis for training, then what we find is that the CTA groups learn an average of about 43 to 45% more in about 35% less time. Mm. Uh, trainees using CTA make only minor mistakes after they are after training. They report they're more confident in what they've learned and in the performance they engage in. Uh, we only have one, I can only find one cost benefit study. It was done in Ireland actually a number of years ago and was in relation to a mandated safety course where people track the outcome of it. But CTA required about seven times more uh, person days from designers and experts at the front end. Mm. But it cut training time by 50% and it saved about two and a half person years, which I think is pretty significant. We need more cost-benefit studies here, but just the additional capture of more decisions makes a huge difference in training performance later on. Yeah, hugely. Um, certainly, what I've uh, found in, uh, in 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 all of the work that I do, uh, which doesn't go as deep as cognitive task analysis, but when uh, when fully exploring the, um, uh, the the performance requirement uh, rather than just the learning need, um, when when after after a little bit of experience, the practitioners spend more time on the discovery phase because they realise the more they do up front the more laser focused they can be on actually affecting performance and increasing the efficacy of the of the solution to achieve the desired results um, but it's one of those things that uh, that learning development sometimes are reticent to do uh, to do more analysis because they can't equate the um the work up front to actual results until they've got the experience it's uh, uh, it's it's kind of a uh, a vicious cycle in that regard Absolutely, it's, that's exactly the problem. Um, so, so relating um, uh, what we're talking about to, to traditional learning and development, what's the gap that cognitive task analysis is plugging in traditional um, instructional design uh, and, and content delivery? I think what we're actually trying to solve is the fact that trainees are expected to discover all of those decisions and actions that weren't captured during this discovery phase, more traditional discovery phases. And that additional 70% of the decisions that we capture and that additional 30% of the actions actually reduces the mistakes that they make that they have to recover from and then basically say, oh, well, there must be a decision that's made here. And uh, then they learn over time, but they learn at the expense of the organization that they're working for, I think. Mm. Um, and so let's let's get into the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, how would we go about undertaking uh, cognitive task analysis? Well, let me say first that there's there's actually over a hundred versions of cognitive task analysis, but um, some people studied all of them a few years ago, categorized them, and looked to see which ones have evidence that support them, and found that there were only about four to six that were evidence based. And of the 
let's say six, three of them had at least half of the results that another three had. So there are really only three that have major results. Mm. So with that in mind, it, the general activities of task analysis, there's two stages where this cognitive task analysis comes in. Let me just review some of the typical discovery stages. First of all, most analysts are trying to get a, a list of tasks that are performed in the sequence in which they're performed. Secondly, they, they ask where each task, where and when it starts, um, what has to happen to start the task. And the third step here is a CTA introduction. That is that we really focus heavily on the careful discovery of all the decisions that have to be made because we find during any job, things happen that lead you to go off in a different direction. Um, and some of those directions are, are relatively less frequent than others. So they're, they're somewhat rare. Experts tend to tell you about the, the typical decisions that they, they make, but they tend not to tell you about the others. So there's this constant attempt to follow up and to focus on decisions that might have been missed. Um, after we capture steps, that is how something's performed, we need to know about equipment supplies, speed, quality, common errors, reasons for things, those sorts of things. We also try to capture in most discovery things what new facts or what new process information, what principles people need to learn. And um, we also tend to also capture um, uh, practice exercises, stories about the performance and so on. We add a seventh step to this whole process, which is we once we capture the actions and decisions that the experts tell us about in a CTA interview, we want to take each protocol or each description that we capture from an expert and take it to another expert and ask them to review it and critique it. So there's this constant capturing discovery and then critiquing and revising. And the goal at the end is to produce what we call a gold standard summary of that task from the experts. So, so you're working with, with one expert uh, to, to elicit what they know and then you're getting almost the work um uh checked by by another by another expert is that right that's right and and this we usually interview approximately always three but sometimes up to six experts to get a, the, the most complete description we can of a task of an important task and and we find then that each one of those three to six expert we call them protocols, but let's think of them as the document that's produced that describes what they told us is given to all other experts for review and critique with the idea that we are constantly trying to get a best summary of all of them. Hmm. And I'd imagine that, uh, that uh, for anybody listening uh, who this is new and perhaps they don't undertake uh, such rigorous analysis, this could be... Um, this could be seen as perhaps uh, something that that is probably too involved to to, to get um, to get into with uh, with with anything that uh, that they've they've got on their uh, um, uh, 
uh, in their in their to do list at the moment. So, so I wonder if you could give us uh, an example of uh, of bringing this to life. How this approach has delivered better results or more complete solutions than uh, than than perhaps a, a traditional approach of. Um, uh, identifying and then understanding a learning need and developing a program off the back of that to really investing in understanding from say six experts um uh, this the the level of analysis that you've done here and what you've been able to achieve you know we find that because the work that we do is carefully scrutinized we have to choose areas of expertise where there are no disputes about whether someone's an expert that's a very real problem in doing discovery because I think that analysts, task analysts are often assigned experts in a business who may be people who are, are liked very well and they're considered to be experts, but they may not be as effective as some others. And, it may, and we, we often do analysis in areas where there may not be a lot of consistency in the performance that's out there. Mm. So, for example, we've chosen medicine, particularly specifically surgery is one of the areas that we examine, thinking that the students in surgery are already physicians. They are learning to do surgery. They're extraordinarily bright. They're highly motivated. And so generally they learn very well. Well, in many instances in these surgical CTA studies, we've solved enormous problems that the surgeons didn't know they had. For example, we were recently in a medical school where students were learning to perform a certain um, small surgery um, with people in a university hospital. And then these surgical trainees, they call them residents, surgical residents, were going to a hospital that served communities with people who had very much more severe problems that were being, that needed to be handled in the surgery. The university hospital training was showing surgeons how to solve the minor problem, but not the major one. So they were going to the other hospital, the hospital with worse problems, and they were doing this minor surgery, and their patients were not doing well with it. They had no idea why until we did the cognitive task analysis and realized there was a decision that the experts forgot to tell us often. And the decision was that it depended on the size of something that was going on in a person's body as to which approach they'd take. And that as that changed, the surgery completely changed. Mm. So they instantly modified the condition in, the, in both hospitals and basically a lot of people did a whole lot better. Um, we found similar things that have happened in the energy industry where we did cognitive task analyses with people who analyzed where to sink um, wells to bring up oil. Most of this now is under the ocean in different parts of the world. And this is a very complex process. And it, it's also extremely expensive, as you can imagine. And we found many, many decisions that experts who made plans to where to sink wells and how to go about doing that had forgotten uh, to report during earlier discovery for, by uh, energy companies. And as a result, the, the decision about how to go about doing this modified very significantly, and it resulted in a lot more discovery of a lot more successful wells, let's put it that way. Mm. So these things have happened in almost every case that we have done a cognitive task analysis. 
And would you say that uh, that that CTA works better with uh, with technical skills development um, more than uh, what we would term soft skills, or do you think this could be applied to things such as uh, management development, or you know, specifically uh, how a manager is successful in any given organisation, or perhaps the holy grail then of uh, of say senior leadership? Um, uh, helping to assimilate. I mean, there, there were some scary stats, um, I think, that uh, were published in Harvard a few years back uh, of uh, senior leaders taking up to three years to fully assimilate uh, and to, to be um, working to their potential uh, with any, in, within any given organization. Of course, you know, cultural expectations and constraints uh, play such uh, an important factor in um, uh, management and leadership success, but but largely uh, our uh, context is remiss in any um, uh, uh, to any great degree in uh, in leadership and management development programs. Is this something with CTA? Do you think uh, uh, is applied? Uh, can be applied? And, and uh, have you been involved in that? In in two ways, yes. I, I we've actually done a number of cognitive task analyses in the way that large organization trench managers. Uh, we've also done cognitive task analysis in the way that managers in different contexts actually motivate the people that work for them. How do they discover what motivation problems that people have and what seems to be the most effective way for them to help people, to give people support so they get through difficult time. Um, in, in both those instances, we actually learned a great deal. Um, about motivation, for example, what we learned from cognitive task analysis with managers is now actually a, in a uh, an article that's going to be published by the Harvard Business Review, which is a pretty excellent publication here in the United States, mm -hmm. um, and a book for managers about how to motivate. Um, we've we did a series of cognitive task analyses for the European Patent Office in Munich. And part of that was the management of patent examiners, but also the training of new patent examiners. We learned a great deal that was very interesting, and I think made a difference for the for the uh, the patent office. So, provided that what a person does, what a, a person does at work, what an expert does, can be thought of as reliable, consistent, and is measurable then we can do a cognitive task analysis on that expertise. And we think that it's possible to improve it significantly. And we just improve what we capture that we then train someone else to do. Mm. And, and that's, that's the key there. I think that, uh, that a lot of management and development programs are uh, developed not to address measurable uh, performance um, gaps, but to educate and almost build from an assumed level up to another assumed level. So I think that uh, that that in uh, in in seeking to to make demonstrable difference uh, would would take a level of uh, of uh, of analysis that perhaps the profession isn't uh, isn't used to. Um, and you you mentioned there about uh, selecting experts, and of course. Uh, when and the difficulty in doing so because uh, people's perception of expert is um, uh, can be can be very different, especially if if you're not determining it from uh, from measurable results. But you know, as far as as technical um, development as you've described is concerned, and perhaps on the on the the softer skill side, such as management and leadership, um, what have you learned about selecting 
experts? Well, um, this is a <laughs> this is a major issue for us. Um, first of all, um, we feel that experts obviously have to have performed the role that we're interviewing them about recently. We're hoping that experts have worked it for at least three to five years in an area. Uh, again, that there's clear, concrete, reliable industry standard measures of performance and where they work. People like engineers, physicians, surgeons, sales people, uh, people drive lorries, assembly people, and so on. These are areas where data is kept about performance. Um, and um, uh, we also hope that experts are going to be are going to be willing to work with us. Mm -hmm. um, that we actually try to avoid experts who only train. Um, we find that trainers who are experts and who haven't been doing what they're expert at other than the training actually invent steps that they never performed when they were working. Wow. And so we try to avoid them. Uh, we have a lot of evidence for that, by the way. Um, and we also find that we should never, ever interview experts in a group. Mm. I think it's common in a lot of task analysis approach to get a group of experts together and get them talking about how to do something. We find that they begin negotiating with each other about the things they can't remember, and they agree to a negotiated approach to, the, to a, a job or a set of tasks. But it turns out that what they agree to is not what they do. At least enough of it is not what they do that it's not useful for us. Um, we want about two to four hour segments, usually eight to 10 of them for a significant role in something complex like surgery, for example. Mm. And we want them obviously to be willing ahead to review what other people do and critique it and give it back to us. Um, okay, let's, let's get uh, a little more granular uh, with this. I'm, I'm sure that the, the listener will be intrigued uh, to know um, what kind of things do you ask experts in order to elicit their expertise and know-how? Well, um, that's actually a great question, and it's not an easy answer because <laughs> when we when we train people to do this cognitive task analysis, um, we stretch our training over about five or six months, part time, obviously, and it's fairly complex. We usually train people who um, have some background in psychology, actually. But I, there, there's a I think there's ways that somebody who's not gonna go through this whole training could make a difference. Um, what they could do that actually, as they perform discovery that would really make, uh, or capture more of these decisions that experts would get to, uh, to report. Mm. And that is that they, that as an analyst, we constantly ask experts if there are conditions during the task that they're describing where a different decision needs to be made, where they reach a point where perhaps not frequently, but importantly, something happens that leads them off into a different direction that trainees may, will encounter at some point and need to know about. Um, and we also try with the, uh, the finished analysis that somebody else has performed to ask them to be alert to decisions that this new expert has described that, um, that, that they might have 
not thought of or something that experts has reported that leads them to remember a decision that everybody needs to make occasionally. Mm. So we, we, bottom line is we focus on, we focus, we ask people to focus as much as possible on misdecision. You know, the reason for this is really interesting. If you could give me a second on that. But the reason why experts don't report decisions is not only that they can't observe themselves doing it, but the evidence is that our, that our everybody's brain automates things, decisions that are made repeatedly. And in other words, without our trying, mm. we make, and our, our brains make automatic anything that we do over and over again successfully. So that we don't have to think about what we do when we do it. Our, our actual conscious memory, our conscious awareness is very limited. We can't think about many things at time at one time. Mm. And uh, I, you have to assume that at some point in, in our evolution, being able to think about a lot at once may have actually caused us to make some really bad mis- you know, decisions and so on. So only effective decisions automate and become unconscious. And that's actually what characterizes an expert. They're expert because they have all this successful unconscious knowledge. They don't have to think about these things. They can focus their conscious minds on what they encounter that's novel, that they haven't dealt with before. There, by the way, is an interesting book out there that some people might have read. It's by, um, uh, it's called Blink. And um, uh, it's about this automated knowledge. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell is the author. And it's about how experts use this kind of knowledge in all different fields to uh, be highly successful. And it's a great read. And I think it gives people a good background in the process in which they're trying to uncover when they do analysis. So it strikes me, Dick, that uh, that, uh, by but with learning and development focusing just on the instructional element of uh, you know the behavior element of uh, uh, of uh, a particular task or you know or a role that you know we can be guilty a lot of the time going going so far above task we're talking uh, about role and um, that that we miss we miss such a significant part which is the decision making behind it and um, I don't know whether there's there's any uh, um, study that you've done to give any uh, um, accurate or, or certainly rough figures around it. But to what what percentage do you think we miss in instructional design if we simply focus on what's to be done in and not on the decisions behind it? Well, we ask people who are being trained to train themselves. Yeah. That's my point. And I think that some people are more capable of doing that than others. Mm. But everyone who is who does not receive clear and explicit enough for them information about how to do something during training is going to have to develop that information for themselves in order to perform adequately. Mm. I think that's a lot of what happens out there. I mean, that's why we find often that people who work in teams are more successful. Yeah. Because in a team, not only do you have different skills trying to accomplish a goal, but you have people who are teaching each other the things that they did not pick up in training. Mm. And I think a lot of that goes on at work. And I think that employers have to ask themselves the question, do they want people spending their time this way? So much more efficient to do in training. So much more cost effective to do it in training. Mm. 
Mm. I think the CTA is, is one of the solutions to add a huge benefit on the front end during the time that people are trained that then pays off on the back end, which is their performance at work, the efficiency of their performance. Yeah, the way, the way I've described it many times on this podcast, it's um, you're you're helping people um, not have not having to solve the same problems that have already been solved thousands of times inside your organisation, but because n- nobody's actually been focused on actually addressing those um, uh, those problems, rather than just providing programs and content. Um, that that people are left to fumble along, and and so much of uh, of the stuff we talk about on this podcast um, is to prevent people from just fumbling along, which of course is is inefficient and can lead to ineffective practice, but could also lead to very smart lead sorry to to very smart people leaving your organisation um, under a cloud. Um, so so once you've got your responses from your experts, you, you mentioned that uh, that they'll be checked by further experts. Um, uh, how does how does what you've got then after six experts inform what to do next, i.e. the, the development of a, of a solution? You know, the only thing that we don't pick up in a cognitive task analysis that is needed in training is um, examples uh, that we could use as, um, uh, as problems that people have to solve or as test items, that sort of thing. Uh, and actually, we do try to pick it up so that at the end of a task, task analysis, we have everything that's needed for design, more or less. Mm. I mean, we just add the more traditional features of analysis that pay off, that have worked, to the cognitive aspects that we're adding. And at the end of the interviews, uh, we, have a, we have enough for, to finish a design. We have objectives. We, we know exactly what needs to be done step by step. We know what equipment materials people need to do it. Um, we have and we ask for examples of when something worked and when it's usually applied so we can use those examples in during instruction. So basically, there's nothing else that is needed except the organization of the information that we we produce. And do you typically, I know this is that this, this is going to sound like a daft question, but again, just to make it granular and accessible, um, does it, does it um, often lead to training? Does it more often lead to, to job aids? Um, um, actually, that's an interesting question. I would say that I've never I've been asked this before, but just a guess is that 80% approximately of it leads to training and 20% leads to job aids. Right. And uh, there are some places, I think, in some businesses where job aids are just as effective, even more effective, and certainly more efficient than training. Mm. Uh, and in cases where we've tested, the, where we've done both job aids and training uh, and offered either one or the other to people, um, we find that in many instances, the job aids, if they're carefully constructed, are just as effective as the training. Mm. Yeah, we found we found that too. That again, if uh, if largely what you're doing is uh, is helping people to solve problems that uh, that they would have they would nest more likely have solved and addressed on their own, then uh, then job aids can be uh, can be particularly helpful because you're 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 uh, propping up the work and uh, and the and what they're expected to do in uh, in unfamiliar situations rather than it being necessarily around uh, around instruction. But I suppose again, once you're once you've done um, such rigorous analysis. Um, the the 
both the performance is um, uh, is quantified and the result is laser. Uh, well, I suppose the solution is laser focused on on addressing um, very specific needs. Exactly. Now, I mentioned it earlier on. Uh, you know, uh, anybody listening uh, will this will resonate with because too often stakeholders don't want analysis; they want programs. So, how do you introduce uh, cognitive task analysis into an organisation that isn't used to and perhaps uh, isn't as welcoming of uh, such rigorous analysis? Well, I think that we try very. One of the reasons why um, we spent so many years doing research on this topic is that we felt that it would be compelling to clients to do to to look at the evidence for its success, um, and then to generally try to describe to them studies that have been done that are were in areas that were similar to the problems that they're encountering, because there is more of an investment up front in doing this. Um, and so we have found that it's a very compelling argument to a client to tell them that we can capture that much more of what their experts are doing so successfully that the people that are trained to do that work will gain 40% more and 35% time, less time. And it, also extremely important in some industries that we can show them the evidence that trainees make only minor errors after they're trained because in some areas healthcare engineering and so on making mistakes can be very costly not just in terms of the economic cost but in terms of people's health and safety mm. and those tend to be i think the most compelling arguments for for a, a, a one of the things that we encounter is what I call the not invented here problem. Mm. Uh, because uh, clients will often say, well, you haven't done it in my industry. How will I know it will work? And our answer is, well, you have people in your industry, and this is about something that's common with all experts, all trainees, and all people that perform in all industries. That's not an easy argument to make, even though it seems quite straightforward to me. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what it comes down to is, uh, is do you want something that will predictably work? Um, I mean, and a lot of the time, sometimes with uh, with stakeholders, that's not the case. It's uh, they just want something done. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, in my experience, I think that that what we're talking about will will hit the mark with about eighty five percent of stakeholders who do actually want to make a difference, who want to take the conversation from their request to actual outcomes, rather than the the fifteen percent perhaps who uh, um, are, are, are trickier um, and and carry some weight in an organisation who just want done what um, what what they're asking for. Now, um, if I could tell a quick story about this, Keith. Yeah, this absolutely. Got the, got the attention of people in the Obama White House, the head of their science and technology policy unit in the, in the White House in Washington. And they asked us to come in and make a presentation to them on cognitive task analysis, which we did. And they got very excited about the data and actually hired some people to look into it to make sure that we were reporting it accurately. We decided we were. And so made appointments for us to talk to people in a number of large federal agencies and try and encourage them to use cognitive task analysis. Every one of those federal agencies refused. 
And the argument was that they weren't sure that it would make a difference and it was going to be too much expense up front to end it. Mm. And that upset people in the White House. So after the Obama administration left the White House, these people actually went to uh, many of them to foundation. And what happened was that we began to get interest from pretty interesting people. Um, for example, first of all, uh, Bill Gates asked to spend a half day with us to talk about cognitive task analysis. It turned into a whole day. And he'd obviously read what had been written about it and thought it was really valuable. The next thing that happened was that we were asked by um, uh, the people that were working with uh, Bill uh, or Eric Schmidt's um, foundation, I think it's called Schmidt's Futures. Um, and they're, they're, uh, Eric Schmidt from Google has given what quite a few billions of dollars to be invested in different types of things. And they decided once they looked at this, some of them had been in the White House, that this resistance to adding cognitive task analysis and the amount of time it was taking to train somebody to do it well indicated that this is a good candidate for artificial intelligence. So the Schmidt Futures people have funded the development of an artificial intelligence vehicle for doing front-end task analysis, including cognitive task analysis. Now, we're about a year into that frame, but we have at least another year left. And at that point, I think, we'll have a draft of something that will be an AI system. We're, by the way, we're not going to commoditize this. Our plan is to produce an AI system that we can hand out to people to improve, to use. Mm. And we assume some people will commoditize it and offer it for, for a cost. But basically, we want to see a system that many people can put their own twist on and make work. So this AI system, I think, is going to take care of the biggest resistance we've found from potential users, mm -hmm. and that is the amount of front-end time and cost is required to do it. We think it's also going to begin to sort of somewhat standardize the analysis and discovery process at the front end, mm -hmm. um, although different versions of an AI product are going to focus on different approaches, we hope. This, I think, is the future of a lot of things in training. I think a lot of AI programs are going to be developed that are going to replace analysis and design and training implementation, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I completely agree with you there, Dick. I think that, uh, that there are plenty of things that we don't do because they're hard or we can't get currency. We, we don't have the currency in order to implement, but, uh, but you remove those barriers, um, as you say, with uh, smart technology. And I think that that will uh, increase the impact that would change the, um, uh, the the expectations and the perception of learning and development. And instead of the, um, the, the function that delivers programs, we will then be the, uh, the, uh, the go-to department uh, to affect performance and, uh, and uh, improve results. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm as hopeful as you uh, on, the, on that in many, uh, not just cognitive task, task analysis, but AI um, uh, helping with analysis across the board. I wonder if this is not the future of training and development. Mm. Uh, I'm, I think actually we ought to be having this conversation in a, in a very serious way because I think there are pluses and minuses to this, yeah. this movement more towards more artificial intelligence types of activities and training mm. and development. 
Yeah, I think that there's uh, there is to be a debate uh, to be had there. I think that um, uh, from from where I'm sitting, I think that we, there, there's an enormous amount that needs to be eradicated, which is popular stuff that doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and I think and I think that uh, the the where we move move towards the centre and start to introduce it, I think that uh, at the moment from where we stand, I think the debate will be largely around. Um, uh, perhaps even led by people who prefer to do learning and development in a certain way um, that, that aren't so focused on uh, uh, on uh, the way that work is actually affected and um, uh, and the results that are gained um, but uh, you know I you know I, I you know I'm, I'm with you I'm, I'm very hopeful about where where AI can take us uh, I can see a future where every person in every organization actually is connected to a system Mm. that knows to some extent what they know and that knows what they need to know in order to take whatever it is a next developmental step in the work that they're doing mm. and that knows how then to capture that information and present it to them in a way that will allow them to use it very quickly and effectively and then continue to help them build their careers and whatever their, their trajectory is in their field. Mm. Um, that has to happen at some point. And the design of it, the design of these systems is going to be critical. And as you say, I think it's so important that we try as best we can to use substantive, effective, tested, and proven approaches mm. as we begin to develop these systems. And Dick, until then, if the listener wants to give uh, cognitive task analysis a go, how, can, how best can they do so? Well, I think right now... The best thing to do is to get online and just simply do a search and cognitive task analysis. Um, we have a huge number of, of publications and descriptions of different approaches and so on. So if you were to do a search um, of CTA, and then in addition to that, my name, Richard Clark, uh, or I have a colleague that does a great deal of work and writing in this. His name is Kenneth Yates. Um, like the poet. Um, and uh, uh, we have a great number of things, and we also include other people's manuscripts and, and whatever online work we do. The, um, the artificial intelligence program that we're developing is we're going to reach a milestone here soon where we have a system that will collect information on steps, action steps that people perform. I think we started out by doing it on hand washing. You know, people were describe how to wash your hands and then the system would create an AI version of hand washing. But that's going to be posted online. And when it is, um, we'll make sure that everybody that looks into our, our online uh, work has the URL to get connected with that on the internet and try it out. Wonderful. And uh, finally, Dick, if the listener wants to connect with you or follow your work, how best can they do so? Um, my email is Clark, C-L-A-R-K, at U-S-C dot E-D-U. U-S-C is the University of Southern California dot E-D-U. Wonderful. We'll put a, a link in the show notes. But for now, uh, Dick Clark, thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. David, this was a great experience. Thank you so much for the opportunity. The decisions that lie behind performance are critical, which is obvious, but it's with cognitive task analysis that we actually get to these. 
because it's scary that our top performers don't know 70% of what they do. And so how are those learning supposed to know if we don't help them? If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.